If you've got a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're just going to jump right in here. It says in Matthew 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with them. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where is this Christ to be born? And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, the star, uh, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. The wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother... And scripture says they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures to him, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. It says he rose and he took the child and his mother by night. They departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under. Just a horrific story. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men when Jesus was born, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared again to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, and now go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. It's safe to go back. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah, uh, Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee in the country. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. God, we thank you for the truth of this word. We thank you for scripture. God, we thank you for um, coming to us, God, that, that you became flesh among us, that you dwelt among us. God, that you came to uh, live for us, to die for us, to suffer for us, God, to save us. And so we thank you that you are uh, in control of all things. And we confess that together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I have, I have essentially one main point this morning. So if you're taking notes, here it is. Our God is in control. Our God, and that's, that's good news, right? We'll talk about, some of us respond to that news differently. But here's the point. Our God is in, in control. He is sovereign over everything. Every blade of grass, every hair on your head, every bird in the sky, every planet, every star, every soul in this world, he is sovereign, he is king, he is ruler over all, God is in control. And we see God's sovereignty clearly in this passage in Matthew 2, clearly we see it throughout scripture, but in this passage we see all of these different characters responding to the sovereignty of God in very different ways. So we see God being in control. We see God being the ruler in this story, the ultimate and sovereign king. But how people respond to that reality, how people respond to that truth, matters a great deal in terms of how our lives work or in terms of how or whether we flourish or not as God's creation. There's a common theme in Scripture and really a near universal truth uh, among all people and about every culture. No one likes having their power threatened. No one likes having their authority challenged. You may remember we read last year during the season of Advent, uh, we read through Mary's song, the Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1, and where Mary, who is at this point pregnant with baby Jesus, she's singing about her baby, and she says this in Luke 1, 48, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is her trusting in the promises of God about the baby in her womb. And it may surprise you, but as we learned uh, in studying this passage, that this, this short, impromptu prayer of this teenage girl, this teenage nobody, this country girl, has been, over the centuries, banned by half a dozen governments throughout the world because it's just too threatening. This little song from this teenage girl is just too threatening for those who are in power. Kings don't want to hear about other kings with power set to overthrow the mighty. No one wants their power threatened or disrupted. And here we meet King Herod. In this passage, I may have a picture even of him with the wise men. Here we meet King Herod, king of Israel. He is essentially, um, he's not the emperor, but he is the king, the, the president or the governor of the people of Israel. He hears of this new potential threat, um, this newborn king, king of the Jews. And he is so worried, he is so distraught, he's so overwhelmed with this news, so threatened by this baby that he devises this terrible scheme to locate and kill this child, and then just for good measure, to murder all of the other boys who were born in and around Bethlehem, two years old and younger. Even the potential of a sovereign king, 
a king to overthrow all other kings. Even Herod himself says, this Christ, this anointed king, he, he demands and deserves complete allegiance. And that was terrifying for Herod. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his famous Christmas sermons, he says that God's coming, this is one of my favorite Advent quotes, that God's coming is not only a matter of glad tidings, which it is. God's coming into the world is not only a matter of glad tidings, but first of all, it's frightening news to anyone with a conscience. If we know our own hearts, if we know and are honest about our own sin, the coming of Christ is a threat to each of us because we long to hold tightly to our own power. We don't want anybody to be in control of our lives but us, right? The idea of a sovereign king being born, the idea of a ruler that, that demands everything from us feels like a declaration of war. And it's a confession that he is the one with all the power and not us. And yet, this news for some, it produces for some horror and for some hope. This is good news for many, right? But people, as we see here with Herod, people, people are capable, and many of us know this from our own experience, people are capable of doing terrible things when we're scared. People are, are, are capable of doing uh, horrific things, some of the worst things when they feel powerless or out of control. We claw for control. Herod lied to the wise men, these, these three kings. He called his soldiers together, and then he murdered all the boys in Bethlehem over the last two years. Historians will say this was probably around 30 young men were murdered. Of course, we would like to believe, we would like to believe that we wouldn't have 30 children murdered when our power was threatened, but what would we do? What are we capable of? How dark could it get? Jesus is a threat to our power. That's the truth. If we confess the reality and the truth of a sovereign king, of a creator, of ruler over all, that he is, by definition, a threat to my power and a threat to your power. He is a threat to our own control over our own lives. Jesus is king. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus demands utter and complete allegiance. That means he, he demands uh, control over your budget. Over what you say or don't say, over your emotions, over your sexuality, over your marriage. He's, he's sovereign over your singleness. He's sovereign over your work. He is sovereign over every bit of our lives. He doesn't just want to be our buddy. He demands to be our Lord. So is the story of Christmas for you, for me? The story of a king being born that demands Everything from us? Is that good news of deliverance? Or is it a threat to you? Because you don't want to give up control. Where are you this morning? Because when we're confronted by the idea of a sovereign God, those who have power or who want power, they're scared and terrified. But for the humble, for the wise, they're overjoyed. They're overjoyed. 
How do you respond to his sovereignty? We, we not only see Herod responding to the reality of the sovereignty of God, we then meet this other set of characters, the wise men, the magi. Maybe I have a picture here. Well, there they are with Herod, but maybe another picture of them as well. Traveling to Bethlehem, traveling, um, guided by the star. The, the magi's response um, to Jesus, the magi's response to the sovereignty of God, it stands in car, stark contrast with that of Herod's. Instead of receiving this news about the Messiah's birth as a threat to their power, what do they do? They respond with joyful, overwhelming worship. It says in, in verse 9, we read this, After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, they went before them, and they came to rest where the child was born. And when they saw the star, it says they rejoiced ex exceedingly with great joy, and they went into the house, they saw the child, they fell down, and they worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures and gave him their gifts. You want to know what worship looks like? It looks like this. It looks like this. The, they worshipped exceedingly with great joy. One commentator says, that's, that's quadruple rejoicing, right? It didn't just say they were, they were joyful. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They, they fell to the ground. They, they humbled themselves. They, they submitted to this baby king. They offered him gifts. They made sacrifices. This is what worship looks like. Joyful submission and sacrifice. That's what Jesus demands. And this is how the wise and humble respond. They see Jesus as not only sovereign, but as benevolent, as an all-loving creator, as an all-wise creator, as an all-knowing creator, a sovereign and benevolent king. And this isn't just this dutiful allegiance, right? This is a picture of worship. This is eager, joyful submission. This news of a true king, it's good news for the wise. It's good news for the humble. It's a relief to us that we're not sovereign over our own lives. What a terrifying thing. What a terrifying thing to think that, that my well-being was ultimately just up to me exclusively. That terrify anybody else? That's bad news, right? So when we see this benevolent, gracious king, it's good news. It's a relief. It's a, it's a grace that we have a king who, who attends to our every need, who knows us, who sees us, and who, who loves us, who forgives us, who brings us in. In fact, who went to great lengths to find us. And bring, him to, bring us to himself. For the wise and the humble, this is a true joy, not a true threat. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote. He says, there, will be, there, are, there are three effects of nearness to Christ. Humility, holiness, and happiness. Being confronted with the truth of a sovereign God, of an all-knowing, all-loving creator... It shouldn't be terrifying for us. It should humble us. It should make us happy. How do you respond? How do you respond to the reality of God's sovereign control? Some of us, some of us rebel, right? Some of us are maybe in rebellion now. Some of us, maybe even now, are shaking our fist at God because we want ultimate control over our lives. 
We want ultimate control over our bodies. We want ultimate control over our future. And so we rebel against a sovereign God who is in control and demands control over everything. Some of us, though, some of us may shrink back in fear and in guilt and in shame because we know the depth of our own sin. We know the corruption of our own hearts. And so for some of us, confronted with the reality of God's sovereignty, we try to hide. We search for the dark. We want to hide from that penetrating gaze of a sovereign Lord, but we can't. He sees us all. Some of us, maybe many of us, when confronted with the idea of a sovereign God, we, uh, we do our best to ignore God altogether. We just try to ignore him, right? Because the idea of an all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere God who knows our secrets, it's just too overwhelming to consider for some of us, right? How do you respond? Immediately after the birth of Jesus, this story turns on a dime from celebration to suffering. Everything, when you're reading the story, right, as you're reading it, uh, and this is the Christmas story, right? This is, this is the, one of the happiest days. This is, this is a glorious event. Everything in this story seems to be going wrong, right? Literally, the story immediately following the birth of Jesus is the story of a king wanting to kill him. The family is forced to retreat from one city to another. Maybe 30 children are murdered as a result. And finally, this family ends up uh, as, um, in, in hiding, fearful hiding, running from this king to this rural backwoods community being hunted by the most powerful man in the world. This does not seem like a happy story, right? And yet, this is a story of God fulfilling his promises to his people and to us. This is a story of God protecting his people. This is a story of God being present with his people, even in the midst of great suffering and struggle. It's repeatedly, over and over and over again in this passage, for it is written by the prophets. It is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. It's to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This was spoken by the prophets that it might be fulfilled. In spite of this real pain, and I don't want to minimize the struggle and the pain that was experienced in this moment. I have maybe a picture of this. This is a very famous painting uh, about this moment in time where Herod is hunting for these children to murder. I can't imagine how terrifying it was for, for Mary and Joseph on the run, fugitives, as it were. Fearful for their life, fearful, fearful for their baby's life. I don't want to minimize that suffering. I don't want to minimize that struggle. But even in the pain, even in the struggle, God was present and God was guiding. Throughout this story, we see that it's God, not Herod, not the emperor, not the government, not even the laws of reason, but God who has ultimate and final control. What would have seemed like such <coughs> what would have seemed like such hardship to this young couple, literally teenagers, can you imagine? I've got two teenagers, and I'm glad they're not in hiding, running from an emperor who wants to kill them and a baby in the middle of a desert. 
what would seem like such a terrible hardship to them in the moment was actually, was actually God's guiding hand of grace. He was leading them along the way. He was, he was protecting them. He guided Mary and Joseph step by step. I mean, the angel kept appearing to him in dreams, speaking to him. And he would say, okay, now I want you to go here. Well, now I want you to go here. And to avoid this problem, I want you to go here. God was present with them. He was guiding them the whole way. He sent wise men to them, these three kings, to confirm for them the majesty and power of their little baby. God was not and is not sovereign, but a distant deity. God has always been, will always be, an active and present Savior for his people. One writer says that God, God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. You know, suffering can be misleading, can't it? Suffering is, of course, terrible in the moment, and, and many of us, every one of us, to varying degrees, have experienced suffering. Some of us have experienced great suffering. Um, that's one of the, the privileges and burdens of being a pastor is that, that I get invited into those stories, um, both beautiful stories and very tragic stories. And I know, as I stand up here, and I've been with many of you for many, many years, I know some of the painful stories that you guys have experienced. And when you're in it, it just feels like waves are crashing down on you and there's no way out. But suffering can be misleading. God uses inconvenience and injustice and suffering and confusion. He can even transform those things into divine provision for us. You remember the story in Genesis you know, where, where Joseph was saying, you know, what, what, you, meant for, what you meant for evil, what, what his brothers who had sold him into slavery, who had betrayed him, who had basically thought he was dead, what they meant for evil, you remember what it says? God meant for good. It doesn't minimize the evil, it doesn't minimize the suffering, but what it just, it, it gives us a little bit of perspective. It says, God can use even that. In fact, God is present in those moments. You know, we don't see what God sees. We don't know what God knows. God, God leads mysteriously and sometimes into a certain kind of pain. Sometimes he leads us into a certain kind of pain to avoid greater suffering. But we don't know it, right? We don't know it. We get, we get the privilege of sort of the, the bird's eye view on a story like this with Mary and Joseph. We can see now, uh, a couple thousand years later, we can look at that story and we can say, oh man, we see, we see God guiding every, every direction. We see the king working. We see the wise men. We see Mary and Joseph moving through the story. And it seems so scary. But now, 2,000 years later, we see God's guiding hand and provision. Sometimes he leads us into suffering itself for our greater redemption. Suffering, as many of us know, uh, also has the power to wake us up. You guys been there? Sometimes suffering has the power to wake us up from our sleep. Wake us up from our delusion that we're in control. Wake us up from the delusion, the own, our own lie of our own sovereignty. Sometimes it wakes us up pretty violently. 
and pushing through that suffering. Pushing through that suffering and making it out to the other side, it often softens us to God and softens us to one another. God is doing something with that. Suffering often just seems so, so pointless, doesn't it? And yet, even there, God is working. We cannot live our lives saying that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that God is ruler and king, unless something bad happens to me. And then he's not. We can't live our lives that way. We can't live our lives that way at all. Even in those moments, God is still there. God is still in control. Everything exists for him. Everything exists through him. Now, of course, if we were sovereign, we would avoid suffering altogether, wouldn't we? But suffering has its purpose. heard one pastor say, kind of going through a list of things, suffering often leads us to repentance. How many of us have hit rock bottom? And it was that. It was the act of hitting rock bottom. It was the act of being in that moment of suffering that actually drew us to a place of repentance. Scripture says that suffering can also lead us to a greater reliance on God. We, when we experience struggle ourselves, when we experience suffering ourselves, oftentimes we come to a place to say, God, I don't know how to fix this thing. I don't know what to do with this here. I can't, I can't just technique. I don't have the technique. I don't have the right idea. I don't have the right tools. I need you. It leads us to that place of greater dependence. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 1, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of even life itself. Have you been there? We were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. The God who raises the dead. That's a powerful little paragraph there, right? We were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength, we despaired of even life itself. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Why? To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, the God who raises the dead. So even death is not the end for Christians. God also uses suffering to lead us to, to righteousness, to draw us to himself. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering is a temporary reality for those who serve a sovereign God. But perfect paradise is the eternal reward for those who serve a sovereign God. It works both ways. So how will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus? How will you respond to the news of the coming king? How will you respond to a sovereign God? Will you respond with fear and anger like Herod? Or maybe like the wise men, will you respond with joyful worship? Or with humble obedience and trust like Mary and Joseph? Is the birth of a new king, is it a threat to your power? It is a threat to your power, but is that all it is to you? Or is it the good news of your deliverance? 
a freedom, even freedom from yourself. Jesus doesn't just offer you the path to freedom, you understand? He offers you himself, which is freedom, personified. He, he doesn't say in the scriptures, uh, come with me, I'll show you the way. What does he say? I am the way. He, he doesn't say, come to me, I have the truth. What does he say? I am the truth. He doesn't just say, come to me so you can have a better life. He says, I am the life. Every, every statement, every reality, every emotion, everything is measured against him. He is the truth. He is the way to go. He is the life that we are to experience. Christmas is bad news for those of us who want to hold tightly to our own power. We want to hold tightly the reins of our own sovereignty, but a sovereign king has come, church. A sovereign king has come, and he requires everything from us. He requires that we hold nothing back. Nothing, nothing escapes his sovereign rule. He demands everything from us, but here's the good news, church. He demands everything from us, and yet he gives us even more. He offers us himself.